was 9, I mentioned to you, I was going to try to do chapter 9 all in one sermon, and then I got seven pages in my notes and only six pages in the text, or six verses in the text. I said, I, this isn't going to work. We can't do one sermon here. There's too much. There's a lot of gospel in this chapter. So our last chapter, chapter 8, we looked at wisdom as a divine person. That was the last message. Wisdom as a divine person. We saw wisdom's value. We saw the call of wisdom. And now we're going to hear what wisdom has to say. Of course, keep in mind that wisdom is Christ. Christ is wisdom, I should say, personified, the wisdom of God. Proverbs 9, I'll start in verse number 1 through verse 6. Wisdom hath built in her house, she hath hewn out her seven pillars. She hath killed her beasts, she hath mingled her wine, she hath also furnished her table, so she hath sent forth her maidens. She crieth upon the highest places of the city, Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, Come, eat of my bread, drink of the wine which I have mingled, forsake the foolish, and live, and go in the way of understanding. So in chapter 8, we got the in-depth look at the wisdom of God. First, we heard its cry to all people. Second, we saw the value of it, worth more than all the treasures of this world. That amazes me when you think about Christ. And the riches that are in Christ, and you look at a verse like Demas hath forsaken me, having loved the present world. What garbage to throw away the eternal riches of Christ for the temporary riches of this world. And then, of course, we saw, lastly, the, the divine person identified as the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of all things. The opening of this chapter is a call to a feast that has been prepared. We can't miss the connection to the parables that Jesus tells in this chapter. We'll see a few of them here in a minute. Number one, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. Wisdom has built a house. We have here a clear reference to the incarnation of Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. His earthly house of flesh that the wisdom of God took to himself. John 2, 19. Remember that one? Jesus says, destroy this temple. and I'll build it up in three days. He's talking about his body, his flesh. He took up residence among us. Keep in mind, remember, I say this a lot. We've got to remember this. Jesus was not God dressed up as a human, was he? It's not a Halloween costume. He took to himself humanity. He took to himself a human body, a human soul. He joined the divine person and the, 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 the uh, uh, human person. Thank you, honey. She remembers things I can't remember. And he made them one. So Jesus is not half God, half man. He is fully God, fully man. His divine nature never died. It never ceased. Right? Uh, old pastor of mine, I don't think he's a saved person, but he was posting on social media the other day about Jesus crying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he missed the whole thing. We've talked about it before. He missed the whole thing. Oh, Jesus was cut off from God. That, that means he was no longer God? No. No, 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 no. Jesus didn't cry, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he was forsaken. What is that? The verse 2. Y'all are looking at me. We haven't talked about this before. Psalm 22. Right? It's a song. If I mention to you a song... You're going to know it. 
because he first loved me. You guys are saying, oh, how I love Jesus. Amazing grace, how sweet that I stop. You guys can just pick it right up. You know what song I'm talking about. When Jesus is on the cross quoting Psalm 22, their minds go to the psalm he's quoting, which is a psalm about his crucifixion. It lays it out. But then at the end of the psalm, it says God has not turned his face. But when he cried out to him, he heard him. You know what that verse is doing? It's vindicating. It's vindicating this suffering servant of Psalm 22. They're deriding him earlier in the chapter. He saved others, saved himself. If God will have him. And God does vindicate him. God does hear his cry. God does not forsake him. When Jesus is quoting that, he's not saying, I'm no longer part of the Trinity. He's saying, I'm the man in the story. And I will be vindicated. And he was vindicated at his resurrection. I think it's also safe to say that we see a picture of the church, which is the house or temple of God. 1 Peter 2.5, he also is lively stones or built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.9, for we are laborers together with God, you are God's husbandry, you are God's building. So when it says that wisdom is building herself a house, we see, I think, a reference to both the incarnation of Christ and the church of Jesus Christ. He's built a temple today. Not in Jerusalem, not of clay and whatever else they built temples out of back then. I wouldn't say wood. I don't know if they had wood or not, but a spiritual temple. He's building a spiritual house in which to dwell. You and me. Your grandfather it was, right? If he came to faith, he's part of the building of God, the temple of God. He's building him a house today. The rest of the verse of verse one says, not only did wisdom build a house, but she had hewn out seven pillars. A few things we can glean from this statement. We see, of course, the number of perfection or completion. There were seven things the Lord hates. There were seven churches in Revelation that Jesus spoke to. And of course, we all know about the seven branch candlestick in the temple. The house that Jesus built is perfect. Speaking both, I think, of his humanity. He was sinless and perfect, as well as his church. Say, Pastor, you think the church is perfect? Ours? No. I know you guys too well. You guys know me too well. We're not perfect. But I don't mean this individual body. I mean the spiritual house that God is building worldwide is perfect. Not because it functions perfectly or because we don't sin, but because positionally we are perfect before God. I think it's one of the hardest things for us to really grab a hold of. Our position before God. We have to separate that from our personal behavior. Right? You're not saved today because of your personal behavior. You did not get saved because you were a good person. I'm not a Christian because I was just oh so good I earned it. Right? We're saved because Christ is perfect. And we've put our faith in him. He took our sin on the cross. We have taken his righteousness. Right? So positionally before God, Christian, you are perfect. You're going to say, oh, I don't want to say that. It makes me feel weird because I know how bad I am. 
Our position doesn't depend on our behavior. Our behavior should flow from our position. In other words, we should seek holiness because we stand perfect before God. Because we are united to Christ. Because we have his righteousness. We should act and live and think and talk and behave a certain way. We also have in that number a reference to the sevenfold spirit that rested on Christ. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. I have a lot of verses. We'll turn to some. Some I'll read to you. We'll go through a lot of passages in this message. Isaiah 11, 2. The Bible says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. We see a picture of the Holy Spirit. Perfect, complete. We see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, John of the seven churches of Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now, do you, people say, why are there seven spirits before the throne? There aren't seven spirits before the throne. John's not giving exact descriptions. John is giving visions, pictures, types, right? Like when he sees God the Father, he doesn't give us a description. He can't. You and I can't picture God. We, we can't understand. It's beyond us. So he says, well, he's like this stone. A light like this. Like this. He's giving us pictures. And so he doesn't, there's not seven spirits of God. There's the Holy Spirit, which is perfect in his being, which is why we see it represented by the number seven in the vision. It's perfect. Go back to Proverbs chapter 9. The house that Christ has built is perfect and holy, without spot or blemish. Not because of our behavior, but because of who he is. He has no spot or blemish. You realize that? He's the perfect Lamb of God. We are united to him. Therefore, we have no spot or blemish. I told you guys just a couple weeks ago about that friend of mine. He's probably not saved. I say that a lot. There's a lot of people who profess to be Christians who are not Christians. And you can tell when they speak. And she's talking about the saints in Revelation wearing white robes. And the robes are the righteousness of the saints. And she said, well, some saints will be there in their underwear because they're so unholy. They can't have a full white robe. What she's missing is their robe is not made up of their own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is not an earned position. This is a given position. Understand that. Look at verse 2. She hath killed her beasts. She hath mingled her wine. She hath also furnished her table. So let's break this down. Look at the images being given. She hath killed her beasts. We see here pictured the sacrifice of Christ, the offering of Christ. All the beasts in the Old Testament prefigured the offering of Christ in the Gospels. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Let's read a few verses from Hebrews.
Hebrews 10.1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then they would not would they not have ceased to be offered, because of the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above what he said, sacrifice and offering, and burnt offerings, and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, did I read that part already? I may have read it twice, I'm sorry. I keep looking at other verses while I'm trying to read the verses I'm reading. i got to stop doing that. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, and he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for, for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Apologize, I read that twice. I tend to get distracted when I'm reading. If you guys notice that in Sundays, a lot of times when I'm singing songs Sunday mornings, I get the verse wrong. It's not that I know the verse, it's just I'm looking at the next verse that's coming up and thinking about it. That's why I'm not a good song leader. I like to ponder the words to hymns and songs. They're, they're doctrinal. I start pondering, I get distracted, and I can't uh, lead the song. Anyways, let's go on. Review, let's review this area. Verse 4. For it is not possible the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Those beasts that were offered in the Old Testament were ineffective. They were a picture, and they were never intended to be perfect. You understand that? The Old Testament law was never meant to save us. Ever. Okay? God didn't fail the first time and have to redo it a second time. That's not what happened. The entire first covenant was intended to prepare us for the second. All of the sacrifices that were offered pointed to Christ. They pointed. They were a lesson. A lesson in death. A lesson in what needed to be offered to make men righteous. Why is it the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin? Right? The answer is, they didn't sin. Man did. So only man could be offered. A perfect man, which we could not find one among ourselves. So God had to do it himself. But the beasts that were slaughtered in the Old Testament were not perfect. They could not make you righteous. That's the whole message of Hebrews. Don't go back to the temple. You go back, there's no more sacrifice for sin. There's no sacrifice there that will redeem you before God. Verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. That body had been in view with every sacrifice that came before. Yes, we think about, it's hard for us to imagine the culture back then. Sacrifices were not a once a year thing. Like we tend to think about them as like Passover. But sacrifices were going on all the time, right? People brought offerings all the time. They brought sin offerings, free will, uh, free will offerings. They were, they're, daily, the priests were sacrificing animals. First of all, that's a lot of blood. 
That's a lot of blood. I heard one commentator talking one time in a seminary class. He was talking about how bad it must have smelled in the city of Jerusalem. Daily blood being shed. Smoke from the sacrifices rising. Someone in the class goes, well, I wouldn't want to live there. That's terrible. He said, yes, and so is sin. Sin is terrible. See, our problem today is we don't have a reminder every day about how terrible sin is. They did in the Old Testament. Every day you smelled the blood. Every day you smelled the burning flesh. You saw the smoke. You knew sacrifices were happening because of sin. Today, we sin and get away with it. For now, we think nobody sees us, nobody knows. We're polluted with this American culture that says, we're all pretty good. We're not that bad. We dull our hatred of sin. Every sacrifice pointed to the body that had been prepared from the foundation of the world, from the foundation of the world, when Adam sinned, the moment Adam sinned, the body to redeem him was prepared. Before Adam sinned, the body to redeem him was prepared. You understand that? Before the foundations of the world. I was reading Genesis yesterday. At the end of the creation account, God looks over creation and says, it's very good. You know what's included in God's mind when he said that? Redemption. Redemption. Because the fall was going to happen. He knew it. Verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Not daily in the Mass. Once for all. When Jesus said, it is finished, to tell us die, that means it's done. What's done? There is nothing more to be offered. It's done. No bulls, no goats, nothing. And every priest standing daily, ministering, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. We all know the story. The sacrificing priest could not sit down in the temple. There was no chair for him to sit down. It was a show that his work was never done. Christ sitting down has so much significance for us. Because it means nothing else ever has to be done for our redemption. It's done. He has sat down because there's nothing more to do. The body was accepted, received, and atonement has come. Man's wisdom did over and over again something that could never make him righteous. Christ, the wisdom of God, perfected for all time by one sacrifice. Adam and Eve tried to hide the shame of their nakedness in the garden, didn't they? They hid. They were naked and they were ashamed and they hid. Christ, 
the lamb, couldn't hide. He hung naked before the world. The shame of sin, the guilt of sin on display. There was no hiding for the wisdom of God. He dealt with it head on. As he hung there naked, abused, and suffering for sins, sins you and I have committed, it could easily be said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Go back to Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has killed her beasts. I was reading one commentator. I don't know if I agree with his take on that verse, but I like it. This is wisdom. Christ has killed the beasts, plural. He said, what's being said there by Solomon? I'm going to go with it because I like it. I don't don't know if it's correct, but he said, the beasts, plural, is a reference to all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. He killed. He made ineffective the beasts of the Old Testament by one sacrifice. I don't know that's exegetically correct, but I tell you what, I like the picture of it, don't, don't you? She had killed her beast. The next part of verse 2 says, she had mingled her wine. Wine was often mixed with spices to make it sweeter and more tasteful. It was also mixed with water to make it less intoxicating. Wisdom teaches temperance, but in the sweetness we call, uh, in the sweetness of the wine, we see the call of the gospel, the love of God. Demonstrated in Christ. The last part of verse 2 says, she has furnished her table. This means that wisdom I should say the wisdom of God has supplied everything that we need for our redemption. We are honored guests at this table. We bring nothing. You don't expect guests to bring something, do you? We didn't invite you guys this morning. We can, all right, guys, we're going to have a little. We, we made lunch for you guys. We're inviting everyone over to Miller Hall. Just make sure you bring uh, food, drinks, money. bring money. Bring tables, bring table clo- No, everything's done. Everything's prepared. We, 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 we wanted to provide a meal for the church and for fellowship, and so we provided the food. Drinks were out there. When you arrived, what did you do? You sat down and you ate. Right? We don't come to Christ's table. He's like, okay, now bring some religious works. Bring your baptism. Bring your church members. Bring your offerings. Bring your moral works. Bring all your goodness to me, right? Everything that you and I need to be redeemed by Christ has been provided by Christ. Right down to the faith that we react to the gospel with. We've been saying that over and over again. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Even faith is a gift of God. God works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The willing and the doing are gifts of God. He has provided everything. He's prepared a table. We simply come and dine. That's all we do. That's all we do. It was all furnished for us in the offering of Jesus. Listen to 2 Peter 1.3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. He has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Your sanctification 
is given to you by Christ. This is where we get messed up in churches today, a lot, a lot of churches today. Well, bless you. We're saved by grace through faith, but then we have to really work to stay in God's good favor, to become sanctified. Listen, everything that you and I need has been brought to us by Christ. Everything. We come to a prepared table. Salvation is not a partnership. We do our part. God does his part. It's not. It's all from him. Turn to Luke 14 before we go on. Luke 14. I tell you, I'm almost done, but I don't want to lie in the pulpit. It's only been 25 minutes. You guys know I'm not done. Luke 14, 16. The Bible says, Then said he unto them, A certain man made a great supper, and bade many, and sent his servants at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. You know. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servants, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you, that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper." The theme of this parable is everything is ready. Come partake. But they had excuses, didn't they? They had excuses. Honestly, when Jesus came, what was his message? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What are the Jews? What was their response to that? We have no king but Caesar. We don't want that kingdom. We don't want that Messiah. That's not what we want. Thankfully, their rejection of the gospel has led to the salvation of the Gentiles, of which I am a part. This reminds me of Paul's words to the Jews on two occasions. When Jesus said that those, none of those men who are bidden shall taste of my supper. Listen to Acts 13, 46. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And the second time, Acts 28, 28. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and they will hear it. What's Paul saying there? You've been bidden, but you're not going to taste of the supper. You're not invited anymore. I'm going to others more worthy than you. They'll receive it. The lame, the blind, the poor, those that you are, you have as outcasts in your society, that you feel unworthy, they'll be there. They'll be there. 
And then when it's full, or there's still room left, what does he say? Just go out in the highways and hedges and compel them to come. Who, who, everybody. Whoever will come, let them come. See, there were people that the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't believe should have eternal life. That's the whole point of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. What's Abraham's bosom? It's this region right here. When it says the disciple whom Jesus loved was resting on his bosom, he was laying his head right here. It's nearness, it's closeness, it's intimacy. This rich man who thought himself somebody great is cast out of the kingdom. And this poor beggar who he despised is in a place of honor with Abraham. Christ accomplished everything and made the table ready. The Jews sought... I want to say this the right way. The Jews sought for it in their own righteousness. They didn't just come and partake of the supper. They wanted to do it their own way. Their own kingdom. Turn to Matthew 22. This brings me to another parable. Matthew 22. Verse 1, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which were bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise, and the remnant took his servants and treated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore to the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he said, He saith unto him, or, and, he, and he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. A few things I want to show you from this parable. If we're not careful, church, we're in the same position the Jews are in, the same danger the Jews are in. The Jews were the unworthy guests who killed those sent to invite them to the wedding. Of course, that means the ruling class, the leaders of the Jews. There's debate over who these new guests are at the feast. Some see them as Gentiles after the Jews rejected their king. Some see them as those Jews thought unworthy by the ruling religious leaders, the poor, the blind, the lame, women in general, and so on. Either way, what we see in this parable is everything is furnished. Everything's prepared. Just come and partake. Come. Sit down. That's the gospel we preach. When we're out in public preaching, we don't preach a gospel of, you got to do this, you got to do this. Now, the JWs, that's their message, right? You got to go through the Bible study, be baptized. God's been so many hours out 
giving out pamphlets. You know, they have a set number of hours they have to do every week to maintain their salvation. Our old church, we had a lady who was a former Jehovah's Witness who was telling us that. She said, when they're out in the neighborhoods, if you ever notice, if you ever watch JWs and you go door to door, they'll knock on the door. When no one answers, they stay there for a long time. I asked her one time, why do they do that? She can see they don't care to talk to people. They have to fulfill their time. So if no one's home, they can just stay there at that house for a long time, and the people don't know they weren't talking to anybody. That's not the message we preach. We had a lady at Long Beach Planned Parenthood just a couple weeks ago. What, you guys come out here and now you can go to heaven? No. We don't come out here to go to heaven. We come out here to tell people the wedding feast is ready. Come and partake of Christ, the wisdom of God. He's done everything that needs to be done. This man comes in the parable in his own garments. That represents his own righteousness. When the bridegroom said the feast, I was reading, uh, I forget who his name was now. Anyway, the commentator on this. He said that when the wedding, when it says the wedding is ready, that included the garments. The guests were given garments provided by the host to wear for the wedding. He said how offensive it would be for a man to show up in his own clothes and not what was prepared for him. And we see in this man a picture of the Jews, don't we? Within the covenant community of God, but in their own righteousness. Not in the righteousness that God has provided. And they're cast out. It's a danger for us too, church. We're not immune to that. If he spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee, the Bible says. We need to make sure we're in the faith. Because you can be in the covenant community. You can be a member of this church and die and go to hell. Because you're here in your own righteousness. The table is prepared. The garments are ready. But the garments are the righteousness of Christ, not our own. Don't trust your own righteousness. Trust Christ's righteousness. That's the message of the parable. Isaiah 64, 6 says, Our righteousness is like filthy rags in the sight of God. It doesn't please God. We need to get a hold of that. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You realize that? So even our best moral deeds are sinful to God if not done in faith to Christ. Proverbs, later on in the book, I think Proverbs 16, says the, the, the wicked plow in iniquity, I think it says. I don't remember the right. We'll get there. But in other words, the man who's plowing his field, taking care of his family, is still sinning in the eyes of God because he's not doing it in faith. That's deep right there. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Even if it's good. Even if it's pastoring or preaching or singing or being in church or reading your Bible, or praying, or witnessing. If it's not done for the glory of God, it's sin. Proverbs 9, verse 3. If you're still there, Proverbs 9, 3. Go ahead and go back there. I think you're in the 
parable still. So wisdom, build it or a house. Quick review, that's both the body of Jesus as well as the church, the spiritual dwelling place of God. It's a perfect house with seven pillars. She killed her beasts. She's offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Made ineffective all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. She's mingled her wine. He's given us a sweet story, hasn't he? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. What a sweet story to tell. Remember the song we sing this morning, I love to tell the story. That's the, that's the, that's the, the wine that he's mingled. She's also furnished her table. The wisdom of God has done everything that you and I need to be right with God. Verse 3. She has sent forth her maidens and crieth upon the highest places of the city. Wisdom has sent forth her maidens. This refers to the apostles and prophets that heralded the good news of God for centuries. But they didn't hear them, did they? They mistreated them. They killed them. They cast them out. And the Hebrew says, God, who in sundry times and diverse manners, spake in time past by the prophets, has spoken to us through his son. Who they took, and they said, as the parable goes, there's the, there's the heir, let's cast him out and kill him and seize his inheritance. The wisdom of God has cried out, and mankind has rejected it. What did we get this last Saturday? Some middle fingers and a man saying, F God. You know why? Because the wisdom cries out. The wicked refuse, don't they? They don't want to hear the wisdom of God. And all we're telling people is, the table's ready, come and eat. All has been done, all has been offered, come and partake. Matthew 23, 29 says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, you be witnesses unto yourselves, that you are the children of them which killed the prophets. They destroyed the maidens that the wisdom of God sent to warn them. Even the parables, Jesus relates the same thought. Matthew 22, 23 says, And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bid to the wedding, and they would not come. How many chances did the Jews have? Behold your king. We have no king but Caesar. Shall I crucify your king? Over and over again, Pilate's off. Here's your king. And they get to the point of cursing. His blood be on us and on our children. We'll not have that man to reign over us. Those who had been to the supper said no. And so today, what do we do? 21st century, Southern California. We cry out on the street, from the pulpit, and what do they say? We'll not have this man to reign over us. We have no king but sex, money, ambition, status, popularity. Name any god of the American culture they serve. They reject the true god. 
We see Jesus sending forth the apostles first, and then all of us with them in the Great Commission. Verse 3 goes on to say that wisdom cries upon the high places of the city. This brings to mind the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 27, What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light. What you hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. But I think the greatest reference here is the temple itself. The temple which sat on the highest point of the city of Jerusalem. You can see it from anywhere in town. You can see the temple as you approach the city of Jerusalem from any angle. There was the temple of God. And it cried out with its sacrifices, with the smell of the blood, with the smoke of the offerings. It cried out, man is sinful. God is holy and righteous. It cried out in the tabernacle. When they had a camp facing all their tents facing toward the tabernacle, so it could be within the sight of everybody. The presence of God rested upon it. Wisdom cried out. But they would not hear. And finally, wisdom cried out in person. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. And what did they do? They murdered him. They murdered him. Today, wisdom cries out. <laughs> We've been talking lately about our society. Wisdom cries out, but the world can't tell what a man or woman is anymore. Wisdom cries out, and we've accepted, what's the word I want to use? Lunacy for the wisdom of God. We'll not have the wisdom of God. You know what American society is saying with the whole transgender nonsense going on? They're saying, we'll not have this man to reign over us. We'll not follow his divine mandates. We'll not follow his created order. You know why they're trying to tear apart the family? Because they'll not have that man to reign over them. You know why they're trying to cast off how God has created them? Because they'll not have that man to reign over them. That's our society. But do you have ears to hear the wisdom of God calling out? Saying, don't go that way. That's the way of destruction. That's the way of death. Verse 4. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him. We'll stop there. We'll tell you a minute what she says to him. By simple, it means ignorant or devoid of understanding. This is a call to the lost. That's what they are. Say, Pastor, you think you're better than them? No. I was once ignorant and without understanding. The lost are just dead people walking around in darkness. That's all they are. That's all they are. They don't know anything. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. This is why they can't tell a man from a woman. This is why they murder their babies while crying about school shootings. This is why they turn to wicked people like, I'm sorry to say this, don't get offended, love me anyways, Joe Biden and Donald Trump to save them. Fools. The wicked can't save them. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. This is why churches closed when the government told them to. 
This is why people walk by us at the park on their way to hell and ignore the only hope for their soul because they're ignorant. They're lost. They're in darkness. I heard a story when I was a kid. I was a kid a while back. And uh, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I was there when the big earthquake happened in 89. My grandpa and I had just sat down to watch the World Series. And I heard a story. Part of the Bay Bridge had collapsed. The upper deck onto the lower deck during the quake. I heard a story from the news that a family was on vacation in their RV. And they got to the point where the bridge had collapsed. And so they went back a ways and parked their car across the road and got out and tried to warn people. Don't go that way. The bridge is out. And some stopped. But many just drove. What's that lunatic talking about? Ah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And they drove on to find out for themselves. The bridge was out. Wisdom has furnished a table, made the sacrifice, sent the maidens, that's you and me, out to warn people. Death and destruction are ahead. Judgment for sin is coming. He's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Come eat of his table. It's free. It's all provided. You do nothing but enjoy the bounties of the grace of God. And they're so ignorant and so blind that they say, no thanks, I don't want that. I'll take destruction. Some of them get mad at you for even offering them a way of salvation. The call is to come and get understanding. The references to the simple would also apply to the humble, by the way. He's calling the humble the simple. He's not calling the proud. The proud won't hear the call. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, James 4, 6. For those wanting understanding, wisdom has some words. Verse 5, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine which I have mingled. Come eat of the bread and drink of the wine. What does this picture bring to mind? Of course, the communion meal, the bread and the wine. Jesus is the living bread. John 6, 51, I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I, shall, I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. John 6, 48, I am the bread of life. The call is to come and partake of Christ. His body broken, his blood spilled as the offering for sins. Now, come and take part. Come and eat and live forever. That's the message. His flesh is meat. His blood is drink. Not literally. Spiritually. We partake of Christ. and That's our message. We're, we're giving the message of the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is, I've made the sacrifice. I've done all that's necessary. Come. I've got bread for you, which you'll never go hungry. I've got wine for you, which is sweet. Takes away your sins. I think I mentioned it last time we did the Lord's Supper, but Adam dealt with his sin by blaming somebody else. Eve. 
God dealt with sin by blaming somebody else, Jesus. It's all been prepared. He took the penalty of our sin. This brings to mind Isaiah 55. Turn there, we're almost done. Isaiah 55, verse 1. We're looking at the call of wisdom, what wisdom has to say to us. Isaiah 55, 1. The Bible says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good. Let your soul delight itself in fatness. Are you hungry? Come and eat. Are you thirsty? Come and drink. Come and drink from a source so rich, so invigorating, you'll never thirst again. But you may ask the prophet, dear brother Isaiah, how do I buy without money? This goes back to the last verse we looked at in Proverbs, isn't it? And the parables, everything has been provided. The table is set. He purchased it. We're buying it with his currency. His currency. And he goes on in Isaiah here. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which satisfieth not? There's so many people in this world expending their lives for that which will never satisfy, that which will never fulfill the longings of their soul, both the secular and the sacred. How many people are in these religions? These poor JWs spent hours, hours, hours going door to door, sitting by their book tables in order to earn that which they'll never get, eternal life. How many Catholics go to Mass every day hoping that over and over again they can keep offering and keep offering and keep offering the sacrifice of Christ. They can eat the bread and drink the wine. It becomes Him inside them and it gives them life for which they'll never partake. How about the secular world which gives themselves to sex and popularity and trends and fun and entertainment, and they're never satisfied. They never say, that's enough. No, no. I don't care what your drug is, alcohol, porn, or fame. It's never enough. You want more and more and more and more because it never satisfies. Why would we go back to the world that never satisfies when we have the bread of life? God has provided everything for us in Christ, church, and it is enough. Go back to Proverbs chapter 9. We'll finish off there. I meant to have you read more of Isaiah. Let me, let me while you're turning to Proverbs 9, let me read you, I was going to read you earlier. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's the message of wisdom. Seek the Lord, forsake your evil ways, or in other words, repent, 
Return to the Lord, for he will not just pardon. I love that. We got to talk to my wife about that the other day. I may have. We talk about a lot of stuff. He will not just pardon. He will abundantly pardon. Are you a great sinner? Great. Christ is a great Savior. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. There's no sinner beyond the reach of the grace of God. He will abundantly pardon. I remember sitting in the prison when I was ministering in there with a man. You, you just never, you'll never know the feeling of sitting by a man who's six foot six. 400 pounds, all muscle, weeping like a child because he doesn't feel that God could ever forgive him for murdering his wife. And I'm able to take him to the Bible and say, brother, God abundantly pardons. He's not here to forgive the liar only. He's here to forgive all who come to him. Let the sinner forsake his way, the wicked man his thoughts, and he will abundantly pardon. I believe that man was saved. You know why? Because God abundantly pardons, abundantly pardons, Sorry, abundantly pardons those who come and sit at his table he's prepared. By the way, I hate to, you know me, I like to take shots at Catholics all the time. What do you do with purgatory? The whole concept behind purgatory is your sins are never fully cleansed, and so you have to go have them purified after death. How do you have that doctrine with a verse that says he abundantly pardons? That means it's overflowing. It's more than is necessary. There's no way there's any sin left from a God who abundantly pardons. Remind your friends of that. Verse 6. Forsake the foolish and live and go in the way of understanding. He's saying the same thing here we saw in Isaiah. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and return to the Lord. Forsake the foolish path, forsake foolish sins. The very same can be said in Isaiah 55. Forsake sin and live. That's the call to us today. If you're not saved, repent and turn to Christ. He'll abundantly pardon. Turn to the path of wisdom and find eternal life. If you profess Christ, my message to you tonight is forsake sin and live. You know, pastor, I don't have to worry about sin. <laughs> I'm already saved. I'm all good. I got my ticket punched. That's not how it works, church. If we go on in sin, we're demonstrating we're not truly saved. So if you're here and you say you're a Christian and you're living in sin, my call to you is to turn from sin to the path of God's wisdom. Don't hold on to it. Don't continue down that path. Romans 6.16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. That death is eternal death. You make yourself a servant of sin, you are a servant to death. You are not saved. Don't take comfort. Don't take comfort. Well, I, 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 I prayed the prayer. I got baptized. I joined the church. So I'm good. 
No. Evidence you're good with God is a righteous life. It's holiness. It's forsaking sin. It's not wallowing in the sins for which Christ died. Turn and forsake those sins. If you're a slave of sin, then that leads to death. Don't think that because I'm a Christian, I can run and play with sin. If that's your thought, you're not a Christian. Forsake it. Run far from it. Don't play with it. Sin is not a pet. It's not a toy. It's a poisonous snake for which there is no antivenom. It will destroy you. It will destroy you. I only have one point tonight to take away from this. Everything we need, church, is provided to us in Christ. The sacrifice has been made. The table furnished. All we do is come and die. That's it. We simply receive what God has done for us. <clears throat> Have you done that? Are you doing that? It's an everyday thing, by the way. It's not a one-time come to the table and partake and go your way. It means you stay there. You stay there at his table. You serve him. You love him. Wisdom has spoken so far in this chapter, and all I've heard from wisdom is, I've done everything. Just come. Got a, sitting, a friend who's a sinner? Family member who needs to be saved? Speak to them. Just come. It's all you have to do. It's all prepared. It's all ready. There's nothing for you to do. Plans have all been made. Table's been set. The offer you've been made, just come and partake. That's the work of God. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you tonight for your love for us. I hope I made some sense tonight, Lord. The, the table's been set. And we have nothing that we can bring. All of our bread is moldy. All of our wine has gone sour. We have nothing we can bring to your table. But you've offered us your body as bread, your blood as wine, as drink for the forgiveness of our sins. You've invited us, unworthy as we are, to sit at your table. And I'm left speechless just thinking what to say. Except thank you. Thank you for Christ, for the cross, for having mercy upon me and my sin and my ignorance. Oh God, won't you draw others to your table? That they too could partake with us of the goodness of God. Will you help us to be faithful ambassadors? Not to judge, not to condemn, not to argue, but to simply invite 
Come and partake of the bread of life. Help us, Lord. Keep us from sin. Help us to keep coming and taking that bread of life. To drink of that water of life. Having tasted the waters of Christ, the wells of this world seem bitter. Keep them that way. Draw us ever nearer to you. The table is set. The sacrifice has been made. Thank you, God, for Calvary, for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.